This is Adapted with Anna and Sam. We love books and we love movies. Warning, here be spoilers. Welcome to Adapted with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna. And I'm Sam. In this podcast, we talk about a book, we talk about a movie or a TV show based on that book, we play some fun games, and we encourage you to read and watch along with us. This episode, we are diving into some recent history with that, quote, greatest reporting effort of all time, All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Rob Woodward, and its 1976 adaptation starring Robert Redford and Dustin Harriman. I mean, Hoffman. Or do I? (laughs) Oh man, his hair is amazing. His hair. So, um, uh, Diana, do you want to give us your quick take? I'd love to. This was depressing. Yes, that is putting it perfectly. And I also do just want to take a moment to um, point something out for our listeners. I know some podcasts have a very quick turnaround, Mm-mm, but because no. we have to do so much preparation for each episode, reading the books, writing our essays, do you realize that we assign ourselves? homework i do and we are nerds yes we are so because so much work goes in each episode (laughs) we sometimes will pad our timeline and record weeks or even a month before we release (laughs) each episode so um you know we don't normally uh refer to current events all that much but if we do we do so acknowledging that by the time this episode airs things may may be be very different different. (laughs) We're recording at the beginning of April 2019, and who knows what the latest debacle will be coming out of this administration (laughs) by the time you're listening to this. So if we don't mention something really crucial... That is why. That's why. Yep. Yep. What do you think, Sam? What's your quick take? (laughs) I mean, my quick take is, like, as I was reading the book, I was like, how do people not realize... We're in the exact same situation again. The parallels Ten are times worse. very clear to me. Yes. <laughs> but um, I would say, you know, it self-awareness is not the strong suit of some of the people we're talking about. It's, you know, and I, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. I know. This is tough because we are not a political podcast. No. And clearly... We have opinions, we have thoughts, <laughs> but we tend to focus on different areas of things right. in we, our we, podcast. We like to, you know, we try to keep it fun and, and, and you know, light and, and stuff. To escape the depression of the real world. Exactly. And so the, reading this book is going to make that a little bit difficult. Um, I mean, we still find the fun in it. We still find the comedy and the hilariousness of both the book and the movie. And Dustin Hoffman's and hair. And Dustin Hoffman's hair. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, escape the real world completely, especially in today's climate. Yeah. It's just, you can't do it, unfortunately. So this episode, we're abandoning our escapism and delving feet first into <laughs> the miserable realities. Let's go. Uh, yippee. Sam, what are your six degrees? All right. So um, I started with Lauren Bacall, mm-hmm. who was in with The Witch of the Waste, um, in Howl's Moving Castle. Mm-hmm. She also starred in My Fellow Americans with Jack Lemon. Oh, I see where you're going. Right? I didn't do it the whole time. Okay. That was the only one. Well, no, that's not true. Um, and then Jack Lemon was in Bell, Book, and Candle with James Stewart. Oh, Jimmy. Yeah. James Stewart was in After the Thin Man. Oh. With Sam Levine. Sam Levine was in The Mad Miss Manton with Henry Fonda. And Henry Fonda was in 12 Angry Men with Martin Balsam and Jack Warden. And both Martin Balsam and Jack Warden were in All the President's Men. I, for a minute there, thought you were going to do Jimmy Stewart was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, no, I see. I did that. I, no, I did Mr. Bl- Blanding's Dream House. But I would try to. But I was like, I want to do After the Thin Man instead. <laughs> I respect that. That's totally... <laughs> What's your six degrees? half not taken. Um, So I started with Christian Bale. Nice. Uh, He was in I'm Not There with Kate Blanchett. She was in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou with Angelica Houston. There you go. There you go. And now we're going to get into some of my childhood favorites. Because Angelica Houston was in Adam's Family. I love that movie. With Christopher Lloyd. I know. And Christopher Lloyd was in Clue (laughs) with Eileen Brennan, which is if there is a movie that I could just like Watch quote slash mm-hmm. act out the entire movie from beginning to end including like sound effects and musical clues and all three endings oh yeah obviously all three endings yeah. 
Um, listeners, if you're not familiar with the 1980s movie Clue, like one, what, turn off, that. turn off the podcast. Yep. Just turn it off. Stop Nothing we can say will ever match the hilarity nope. of that nope. movie. That oh, is, God. oh, it's so good. so good. And Eileen Brennan was in this thing with Robert Redford. Who's <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we go back to Clue? I'm just kidding. About, let's do a new podcast. This is just, we're going to talk about, about Clue. Clue every episode. And it's going to be a daily podcast. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a great idea. Right? We totally have time for that I mean, one. We'd have fun. And honestly, we'd probably have the same number of listeners. That's true. My mom would listen. She totally My mom would. would love that. She would. And then she'd like call and be like, I think you got this detail wrong. Because she actually has seen it more than me. Oh, man. It's good times. Good times. <laughs> uh, so, Anna, do you want to give us your book report? Yeah. Nerd that I am. Here's the essay that I wrote for fun. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> my nerdness will come out because I totally cheated this week. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not cite your sources? You should see the bibliographies that I write for these. They are impeccable. I I always took top marks in English class in high school. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, and suddenly our listener numbers dwindled. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> All the President's Men was written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward and published in 1974. Um, uh, Woodward and Bernstein had considered writing a book about the Watergate scandal, but it was actually Robert Redford's interest in the film that the, in the film rights that pushed them to do it. Um, also, Redford's influence meant that the book focused more on the journalist's investigation than just the events of Watergate themselves. I mean, if Robert Redford were interested in you, would you say no? Yeah, Robert Redford calls me on the phone and says, Anna, do a daily podcast about Clue. And I'd say, yes, <laughs> yes sir. sir. I'd be like, not a problem, sir. <laughs> so as a result, the book follows the scandal as it unfolds from the perspective of the two young journalists as they uncover the layers of deception and cynical manipulation surrounding the Watergate break-in and its cover-up. That is one of the things I did notice about the book is, like, you really need to be familiar with Watergate to truly understand some of the well, some of the repercussions, I, like the little details. Yeah, I will say there was a lot of things that I had to go back and re, re- Like, they're, yeah. they're referring to these people I, I yep. didn't know. And, you know, you think about the Nixon era and the Watergate scandal and... Or you think about the Watergate scandal and you think of Nixon. Right. But this is There's everything so leads up to that. this. Yep. Nixon barely comes into the book exactly. because... He doesn't even resign until after the book is published. Right. Well, and originally they didn't think it went all the way up to nope. Nixon. So I mean, why would you? It's like he's a freaking president of the United States. Right. And I'm I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because I wrote about this. But yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That's, that's Spoilers. What my, that's what my thesis date for my essay is about. <laughs> Anyways, we all know now that Richard Everything's Coming Up Millhouse Nixon was <laughs> <laughs> capable of that. But at the time, the facade was so solid that at first everyone thought Bernstein and Woodward, or Woodstein, as their colleagues called them. Uh, is that the first um, like celebrity couple portmanteau? Yes, it is. Nice. Nice. It's the uh, first Brangelina. I know. Aww. Woodstein. Their adopted babies are so beautiful. Yeah, they, no, mm. See, <laughs> see, I'm talking about Woodstein's adopted babies. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on actual babies. That's, well, no, I was talking yeah. about Woodstein's. Okay, I, right. ne- I don't actually remember what they look like in real life, but if they were Robert Redford's, yes. If they were Robert Redford and not Dustin Hoffman's, adopted babies. Their genetic material doesn't actually come into. Okay, we are getting so <laughs> off topic already. Uh, where was I? Brought to you by Jin. <laughs> I'm just so proud of my everything's coming up Millhouse joke. That's amazing. Um, so I mean, Woodst- Woodstein seemed like the lone voices uh, pointing to Watergate as more than just a fluke and the symptom of deeper corruption. There, I finally got through my first paragraph. Sorry. 20 minutes later. No, it's my own fault. <laughs> you wouldn't... Mm. <laughs> So the book starts with uh, the cast of characters, the president's men, the burglars, the prosecution, the judge, the Washington Post, and the senator. Noticeably absent from the cast list are our main characters, Bernstein and Woodward themselves. Um, Also, the book is told in the third person with descriptions of Bernstein, uh, who is 28, and Woodward, who is 29, and their initial odd couple-esque relationship. But it's all told as if there's some Some omniscient narrator narrator. who's commenting on them. It, it It was an adjustment. 
I got to I got into it and I totally understood why they did it, but I was like, this is gonna take some just in time. Guys. I would also say that the book itself has a bit of a slow start because yes. at the time they didn't realize how big a deal yep. it was. It was just Woodward gets a phone call early in the morning, June seventeenth, nineteen seventy two. His editor says there's been a burglary at the Watergate Hotel. Or no, so he, he says there's been a burglary at Democratic headquarters, and at the time he doesn't realize it's the national headquarters. He thinks it's just the local ones. Yep. Um, so you know it's. As the tension ramps up, the book gets a lot more interesting. So if you are trying to read this book, uh, please stick through it for more than the first two chapters. It does get... It gets so it gets, good. I mean, you will get oh. engrossed in it, but you, yeah. it, it, it does a slow yeah. start. I did... Yeah, I flew through it at the end. I was like, I need to know. Yeah. I mean, I knew, but also... Right, exactly. What was interesting is I knew how it ended, but I really had no idea how they were going to get there. Yep. Um, and side note, even though I knew Dustin Hoffman played Bernstein in the film, so I pictured Robert Redford when I was reading about Bob Woodward, but when I was picturing young Bernstein, I kept picturing young Bernie Sanders. <laughs> uh, nope. Bernstein, Bernie, I don't know. but I, So I kept picturing, like, I've seen, you know, pictures of mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders when he was in his 20s and 30s, and, and that's who I pictured. <laughs> I pictured young Bernie Sanders and Robert Redford, like, teaming up and <laughs> fighting the man. My dreams are weird. Mm, yes. As details of the burglary unfold, Bernstein and Woodward are both pursuing the story. Woodward is hot on the chase, and it, it's interesting um, reading about a pre-internet uh, investigation. So Woodward has to make endless telephone calls. Yeah. Um, and when he doesn't know uh, the name of someone who works at the White House, he has to ask his fellow reporters, like, do you know who this person is and what they do? You know, he can't just Google someone's name. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great scene in the movie after. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then um, uh, one of the key pieces of evidence uh, that the burglary is more than just bungling burglars um, is that two of them have the name of the same man in their address book, mm-hmm. and it lists him as being at the White House. <laughs> Roll a because they, <laughs> right? Um, so Woodward, Woodward, Woodward. Don't know why I can't say that word. <laughs> Woodward soon finds that as he drops off finished pages, Bernstein is picking them up and rewriting them. Woodward reads the new versions and admits they're better. And after that, the two writers team up and tag team the investigation as it takes them all over D.C., down to Miami and back again, but always leads back to the Committee to Re-elect the President, a black box of an organization that is determined not to let any information leak out. Even a list of employees is hard to find. But Woodstein is determined, and as they crack the seemingly impenetrable surface of the CRP stronghold, they find the evidence that Watergate is more than just the work of overzealous supporters. It is the tip of the iceberg, one of many quasi-legal and illegal actions to undermine Nixon's opposition. Uh, As each phase of their investigation takes them higher and higher up the food chain, to the White House itself, and eventually to Nixon's chief of staff, the terrifying H.R. Halderman. And as we now know, Nixon himself. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, we know now. Nixon was dishonest. Of course he was a crook. This has been like an accepted truth my whole lifetime. I was Mm -hmm. born after Watergate. But there was a time when he was reelected with a landslide of public support. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear in the beginning that even Woodward and Bernstein can't imagine that this is going to entrap the president himself. They'd never set out to take down the presidency. It's like it doesn't even cross their minds as a possibility until like the last, what, like quarter of the book right and even then it seems like they are realizing that nixon has to know about it i don't think they even then think that he could actually be taken down by this no and they're and at some point they're like they're also wondering like are we being set up oh yeah they they are very paranoid it's great yeah so woodward has a good friend with a high position in the government howard simons one of the post editors dubs him deep throat Named after the porn, famous porn movie. So that was that was actually interesting for me to find out. Mm-hmm. I always assumed that the movie was named after the informer, but no, the no. informer's named after the movie. And isn't that flattering? That's so flattering. Um, he gives him that name because he insists on only being used for deep background. He can't be quoted or even cited as an anonymous source in the White House. He only will guide Woodward by suggesting directions or confirm things that Woodward has already found from other sources. It is imperative that no one know Deep Throat is Woodward's source. They set up a complicated system of signals to arrange meetings, and Woodward takes multiple cabs to get to the parking garage where they meet in the wee hours of the morning. I mean, the dedication that Woodward shows to, like, you know, the whole path to get to the garage. I know. Every time. And he documents that. I think he's, like, like trying to show off a little bit. Like, oh, I took oh, yeah, two no, cabs totally. at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> he's like, look at what I do for my job. So clandestine. 
Woodward and Bernstein follow the money. The CRP has hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and prizes. Nah. It's really just cash. I just, just cash. That was just a joke. The cash is the prize. Sorry, I said it wrong. Cash and prizes. <laughs> and the journalists are determined to prove that it was being used to fund illegal activity like wiretapping and the burglary at Watergate. And that high ups at the Waterhouse were all... At the Waterhouse, high ups at the White House were authorizing its disbursement. A lucky tip off leads them to a young lawyer in California named Segretti. Segretti is how Californians pronounce it. Um, Segretti was in charge of recruiting agents all over the country to perform low level pranks and sabotage on Democratic candidates. Things like ordering pizza, flowers, and entertainment and sending them paid on delivery to Democratic fundraisers, publishing bogus campaign materials about one attacking one Democratic candidate, supposedly under the name of another Democrat, and sabotaging events by calling the venue and telling them that the time had changed. It just sounds like something a frat house would do. Well, and that's exactly what it was. Segretti and his friends um, at the White House, a lot of them went to college together, and they used to do this during college elections, and Mm -hmm. they called it rat fucking. Because, pardon my French. That's what you do. (laughs) Um it is not illegal, it's just disruptive and petty, and it so discord throughout the various Democratic campaigns that they were attacking. And the CRP funded it. And then, of course, worse employees lied under oath mm-hmm. to hide it. Or supposedly worse. I think, frankly, undermining the Democratic process right? is actually pretty crappy. That's pretty crappy, yep. Mm-hmm. As Woodward and Bernstein's story picks up steam, other newspapers are following it, too, and scooping other sources. It's a race against their competitors, but it also vindicates them that other journalists, including the New York Times, are publishing corroborating reports. But the White House singles them and the Washington Post out as villains determined to ruin Nixon. The hmm. president's men claim... I know, this is going to sound really familiar. Huh. The president's men claim huh. the Washington Post is working for the McGovern campaign, and the story is all an act of desperation to try and undermine Nixon's re-election. Woodward and Bernstein are relieved when the election is finally over and Nixon wins so they can finally escape the execution a- accusation that they are somehow partisan pawns. Um, there was one passage in particular that really, like, rang a kind of alarm bells for me. Um... Uh, Vice President Spiro Agnew had spent the previous three years claiming the press was elitist and anti-Nixon uh-huh. and undermining the public's faith in the press before the Washington Post had ever even written anything about Watergate. Yep. So when the Washington Post starts criticizing Nixon's cronies, they can hey, say, it's... well, I told you. Yep. Look what they're told dishonest. You so. mm-hmm. The press is the enemy of the people. Yep. Oh, God, this is it. Was, this was getting to this part of the book was just it started to hurt. And then Ugh. so this um, this next part was one that I wanted to call out as well. So the the rat fucking, it feels very familiar, this idea of playing cynical games um, just to win an election. You know, Nixon and his followers are so cynical, it never occurs to them that not everyone is going to play as dirty as they do. Mm-hmm. So there's a story later in the book that one of the schemes the CRP uh, pulled is that they wanted to make it look like Nixon had more support. Um, they wanted to make it look like he had more support than he really did. So... A CRP employee spent $8,400 on fake telegrams and ads to make it look like private individuals were supporting the mining of Haiphong in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And then a former CRP employee admitted to Woodward and Bernstein that the CRP rigged a WTTG poll yep. uh, about the mining. They sent in approximately 4,000 ballots in yep. favor of the president's actions. The total number of ballots received in favor of the president was 5,157. If the CRP hadn't submitted those 4,000 and stuffed the ballot, the number of pros and the number of cons would actually have been almost exactly equal. Mm-hmm. So these guys engineered it to look like the president had more public support than he really did, which actually helped steer support. Because if everyone says, mm-hmm. oh, look, oh, everyone like else is for it. this, yep. maybe it isn't so bad. Yep. So it's cynical and it's depressing and it sounds so much like the current political climate. Mm-hmm. Um, that manipulation of public opinion predates social media. Yes. And, you know, with the 2016 election... There was so much talk about how there's all of these, you know, fake accounts and, and fake stuff going on and, on Facebook and Twitter. And it's like, that's exactly what they were doing mm-hmm. just in a pre-social media age. Yep. Yep. Um, and then you read about that, about how people are undermining democracy and it makes you look fa- lose faith. Um, and then losing faith in democracy undermines democracy more. Because yep. if you think your power um, is being taken away from you, then why bother participating in the system if my vote doesn't matter? Why bother voting? So yep. it's just, it's um, really disheartening. And, um, you know, that's, ultimately, that's Nixon's legacy. Yep. So thanks, Millhouse. 
<laughs> so uh, back to the back to the book. Uh, the burglars and two of the men who hired them, McCord and Hunt, plead guilty. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein are determined to prove that they're being compensated to fall on their swords to protect the administration. The presiding judge, Judge Sirica, uh, is also convinced that not everything came out of the trial, um, but uh, he is forced to uh, move forward. And it says that it is up to the Senate to investigate and hopefully find the truth. Uh, Woodward then meets with Senator Irvin to discuss the investigation, which is one of my two favorite passages in the book. So I'm just going to, I'm actually going to read the description of Senator Irvin because it's so great. <laughs> and the accompanying picture just supports it so well. I know. If, yeah, look at the picture too. We can't show pictures on our podcast, but you should. But we can post them on the internet. Ooh, let's do that. Let's, let's use the internets for good. <laughs> Senator Irvin was sitting behind a heavy wooden desk in the center of his office, a rumpled, hulking figure with a huge ham of a face. <laughs> Which I, if I I say it's people so have huge true. hams of face all the time. So. Well, and like his picture, he does have a huge yeah. ham of a face. He looked as if he would be more comfortable in a front porch rocker than in the standard issue beige swivel chair he overfilled. Great heaps of paper were strewn chaotically across the desk. He leaned back and began speaking, head jerking, jowls jiggling, bushy eyebrows twittering, like some great bird of prey trying to lift off, lift off without losing his kill. It's so great. It's it. They are quite talented writers. Right. By the way, my second favorite passage in the book um, is that during the trial, Bernstein has to chase after the accused burglars and Woodward gives him $20. Woodward crams himself into a cab with three of the accused and their lawyer, going with them to the airport and even getting on a flight to Miami with them. Woodward writes a note to himself that Bernstein owed him $20. And that's in the book. <laughs> uh, but back to Senator Irvin. He says he's willing to investigate the CIA, the White House, all the way up to Halderman, quote, anybody but the president. Yeah. Irvin says he wants to give everyone mentioned in the Washington Post reporting an opportunity to testify and exonerate themselves. He says this with a smile and dancing eyebrows. <laughs> I think he means implicate themselves. That's the subtext. <laughs> but how can you refuse? It's like, hey, I'm just giving you the right? chance to set the record straight. I just want you to see. I just want you to be yeah. able to prove your innocence, man. There you go. Mm -hmm. Just come testify. That's right. During the Senate investigation, Woodward gets the heads up that one of the witnesses, Butterfields, Alexander Butterfields, is going to testify that Nixon bugged himself. Benjamin Radley, executive editor at The Post, tells him it's a B-plus story at best and they hold off running it. But when Butterfield testifies on live television about the existence of the Oval Office tapes, Bradley says it's more than a B-plus. And as we now know, the reveal of the uh, Oval Office tapes is the beginning of Nixon's unraveling. Mm -hmm. The book ends with Nixon's January 30th State of the Union when he states unequivocally he will never walk away from the job he was elected to do. And what does he do? Uh, I believe he walks job. away from the job he was elected to do. <laughs> hint, hint. Spoilers. Um, now, the version of the book I got from my library is uh, not... The most recent one, but the 40th anniversary edition of the book, if you can find it, um, has a really interesting afterword, yes. which um, I I did read. It just wasn't in the library version I got. Um, it uh, has the advantage of time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the 40th anniversary, actually. Yeah. Which is... is that what I not said? It's the Yeah. Look for the 40th. If you can find the 40th anniversary edition of the book. Yeah. Um, which I think if you get the Kindle version, that is the 40th anniversary, too. Um, so the afterword. Sorry. Some, sorry. I just kicked Sam. That's what happened. I kicked Sam in my face. That's right. Oh, my face. I don't know why we position ourselves this way before we sit to record. It's weird. I don't know. Um, we shouldn't do yoga while we podcast no. anymore. No, no, no. So um, the afterword summarizes the true depths of Nixon's corruption and the incredible damage of his war on democracy. With the release of the Oval Office tapes, the journalists are able to use Nixon's own words against him as they detail the depth of his duplicity, corruption, and immorality. His anti-Semitism, his cynicism, and his arrogant disregard for the law are on vulgar display. Mm -hmm. Nixon, of course, would spend years after his fall from grace claiming he was innocent. But the Ugh. tapes say otherwise. Right? God. And that is the book, All the President's Men. It was really good. Guys. It is a good read. It, was it good. is. It's and both disheartening and encouraging because yes. the story does get told. It does, eventually. And it, it, it gets told early enough where there... The repercussions are mitigable. Mitigable? They're mitig they're able to be mitigated. Okay. Good. I'm I was not <laughs> sure what word you were trying to say or how you were trying to say it. I'm sorry I left you hanging there. Oh no, it's okay. I figured it out. Oh, good for you. <laughs> Cause I still don't know what you're saying. So the the repercussions were able to be reduced. They like they weren't as far reaching as they could oh. have been. Well, yes and no, because I think the way that they The negative repercussions, I should say. Oh yeah. 
yeah, the negative repercussions. They, they just... Like, I feel like if Nixon had been able, had stayed in office the entire term, mm. like, who knows what damage could have been done to the, dem- to the democratic process. Well, but at the same time, I think the damage to the democratic process is still something we're feeling so yes. keenly today. Yeah. Um, oh, I meant to I meant to look this up, but I didn't. Who was Roger Stone in relation to Nixon? Oh, in real life. I don't know. Because Roger Stone, like, his whole thing is, like, he loves Nixon and he has a freaking tattoo of Richard Milhouse Nixon on his back, which that's that's disturbing. But I just want to say he um he's not important enough to be mentioned in the book. So. No. Nope. Uh. So uh, he was a political consultant? He's a for... dirty trickster, apparently. Is that according to Wikipedia? Yep. Love <laughs> Wikipedia! Would not be able to get around without it. Uh, he worked on the 1972 campaign. He contributed money to Arrival of Nixon in the name of the Young Socialist Alliance. So, oh, that's the rat fucking. Yeah. He was also uh, hired as... He also hired a spy in the Hubert Humphrey campaign... And this guy became Humphrey's driver. Oh, it looks like... All right, so Jeb Magruder is in the book. He's yes. one of the president's men. And he's the one who got Stone a job yeah. at the CRP. Yeah, that makes sense. So he did work at the CRP, but I do... Anyways, he's not the important point, enough to But the point of my story is that he is not mentioned anywhere in the book. Nope. He was a low-level... But he's still... Weasley, pimple-faced yep. scrub. As you are. I said generously. Yep. And he's got Nixon's face tattooed in his back. I just think that's... That's not a face I would want tattooed on me. Even if I were a fan. That is not a tattoo I would want on anyone. No. No. So, Sam, do you want to take us to the balcony? All right. All right. So, uh, released in 1976, so still very topical at the time, Mm -hmm. All the President's Men was directed by Alan J. Pacula and Robert Redford. Uh, Wait, Pacula? How is he supposed to say it? No, no, no. I just... Pacula. It rhymes with Dracula. Oh. <laughs> and Scott Bacula. Yeah. I'm just enjoying the, the, the... wordscape that we're creating here. I know, Anyways, right? Director Pacula. Pacula. I don't know. That might not be how, how you pronounce it. No, it's it's canon now. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, dude, if that's not how you pronounce your name. It We've is changed now. it. <laughs> you now need to be known as Alan J. Pacula. Ow. Uh, it was based on a script by William Goldman, he of the future Princess Braid bride fame and of course misery man misery which we've done i mean he's also done so many other things yeah he's like prolific or whatever i mean and you know may he rest in peace um (laughs) but yeah so most people do know the princess bride as well if they don't turn off the podcast and go watch the princess bride (laughs) come on right it stars robert redford as bob woodward dustin hoffman's hair as carl bernstein Jason Robards as Ben Bradley, who, fun fact, is later portrayed by Tom Hanks in the Post movie. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Jack Warden as Harry Rosenfeld, Martin Balsam as Howard Simons, and Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat. And another fun fact, my stepbrother's sister used to be married to Hal Holbrook's son. Really? Yes. So that's a little, like, real-life six yes. degrees that gets you mm-hmm. all the way to the president's men. That's right. I could no. have known Robert Redford. No, not really. Never going to happen, but... Samantha, I'm disappointed in you, I but you know. didn't take advantage of that connection when you could have. Yeah, I know. Oh, what a... There's deeply, with me. deeply disappointed. Right? Um, fun cameos include Meredith Baxter Burney, before she was a Baxter Burney. And she was just M- Meredith Baxter? Just Meredith Baxter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Walsh from Buffy Season I 4. I know! That was so cool! <laughs> we were like, wait, is that? No. Is, that, is it? Yes, it is! Oh my god, Professor Walsh! So cool! And she's so young. Yes. So young. She's uh, a baby. Right? Little wee. Little mm-hmm. wee. And she has one scene. <laughs> she has one scene. But it's very exciting. It's so good. Um, Ned Beatty was also in it, and apparently F. Murray Abraham. I totally missed I have his no part. idea who he was. Who was Ned Beatty? He was Darden, the prosecutor. Oh. Okay. Miami guy. Oh, right. Oh. Weasley. <laughs> yeah. He is not a good character, not a good guy in any movie that I remember. Uh, I feel like that's a challenge that we'll have to address later. Yes. But, has, I mean, Has honestly, Ned Beatty ever played... The only movie I can see right now is Deliverance. Well, okay, that doesn't reflect well on anyone. But that, I mean, 
he just always plays this, this kind of Weasley guys. Yep, Superman, he was Weasley. Right? Oh, my goodness. All right. Um, oh, he was Lotso in Toy Story 3. That's yeah, not Okay. Right? So then here's the, here's the challenge to our listeners. Let us know, has Ned Beatty ever played a good guy? Please, let me know. If... And tell should... us the movie he was in that you thought he was a sweetheart. And I will just tell you whether or not I'm willing to watch it. Because I kind <laughs> of like the fact that he's always a Weasley guy in my head. You, you just don't even want to know. I don't really want to know. Keep I do, the truth to yourself. I do, but I don't. It's like, I'll just take your word for it. How about that? What if someone writes to you and they say, not only is Ned Beatty amazing in this movie, but it renewed my faith in democracy. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> And if you watch this movie, I'll give you a cookie. All right, then I'd watch it. Okay, so there you go. We there know where we're really. So send your cookies and your opinions <laughs> about Ned Beatty. I mean, I'm sure he's a lovely gentleman in, in person and in real life. Is he still alive? I'm pretty sure. Should we add a new game to every episode of, is he still alive? <laughs> I, feel I feel like, like we could play we could that every that. episode because it almost <laughs> always is asked. Somebody at least is always dead. I feel I like. I mean, that happens. <laughs> Especially especially when we do movies that were made 40 years ago. You know, we're talking about Nixon and now... Ago, 50 years ago? No, it was 40. 45. It was 76. 76, so it's 40, 48? No, 44. Other direction. Whatever. It's been a long it's time. It's math. What year is it now? I don't have Excel in front of me, so screw you, math. <laughs> Your phone is a calculator, Sam. I'm not pulling it out, right? I was. I had. I just had a thought. Don't hurt yourself. It was. Yeah, it was a good one. Oh crap! We were talking about Ned Beatty sending Ned us Beatty cookies. Cookies. Math. Forty three years ago. It was forty three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we are good at math. Who else was in the movie, Sam? <laughs> That's all I got. Okay. Tell us about it. I'll just go into my summary. Um, (laughs) I would like to thank Wikipedia for the bulk of this summary because (laughs) I just didn't have time. But I did add some color commentary. Okay. Let's let's color comment. Um, So on June 17th, 1972, some security guard, color commentary, at Watergate Complex finds a door's bolt taped over so it will not lock. Like, that isn't going to be an obvious clue to something bad happening. Or it's a clue that you forgot your key. Maybe. I'm just you know, or leave a note saying, advocate. hey, guy, sorry I had to put tape over the door. I lost my key. No Call me at this that. number. <laughs> no one has time for that. <laughs> so, of course, he calls the police who find and arrest five burglars in the Dem- Democratic National Con- Committee headquarters within the Watergate complex. The next morning, the Washington Post assigns new reporter Bob Woodward to the local courthouse to cover the story. And I'm sorry, new Gorgeous reporter. Gorgeous. The gorgeous Bob Woodward. Robert Redford is very attractive in this movie. He's very attractive in general. I don't... I just... I think it's kind of unfair that Robert Redford exists. I agree. I think it ruins all other human faces. It does. And, you know... He's impossibly good looking. When, like, when he's in movies, you don't really pay attention to anything else when he's on screen. Do you think do you think he's like frustrated by how good looking he is? No. It's like no one takes me seriously because they just see my beautiful, perfect, chiseled features. No. And they don't listen to what I have to say. I mean, he got his name on as director of this movie. He got this book made into a movie. He got this book written so he could make it into a movie. I don't think he's worried about his pretty face. I just I just like to think that maybe there's something <laughs> that I have in life that Robert Redford doesn't. <laughs> That's all. I just wanted something to cling to, Sam. I'm sorry. I will never be as pretty as Robert Redford, and I have to live with that. Okay, but nobody's going to be as pretty as Robert Redford except for Robert Redford. It's true. Like, I think it is, It is like... How do you think Dustin Hoffman felt having to act? I don't care how Dustin Hoffman felt. <laughs> I don't care. Opposite Robert Redford. Dustin Hoffman felt great about his Kylo Ren cosplay. Oh, God. Hair. No, that hair. He- Totally had Kylo Ren hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I don't even know where I was. Something about Robert Redford. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so Robert Redford, I'm just going to call him Robert Redford now, 
goes to the local courthouse, and this is actually a great scene because Robert Redford is basically just following this lawyer around the courthouse, asking him why he's there if he's not hired by the defendants. So it's like a 10-minute scene. Yeah, of him just annoying the guy. Just him asking the guy questions. And so, like, at one point they're in the bathroom, one point they're in the courtroom, one point they're in the hallway, then they're back in the bathroom, and then they're back in the hallway, and they're back in the courtroom. And it's amazing. Because Robert Redford's just low-key, like, pulling out his notepad. So, so what's your name again? Uh, so what are you doing here? Who do you work for? And who hired you? Mm-hmm. Just asking the same questions over no, and over again. It was amazing. I'm not here in official capacity. Nope. Just a just a private citizen. Just and an then, individual. of course, he gets everything he needs, which is because he's Robert Redford and he's too pretty not to. Or because he's Bob Woodward and he's a good detective investigator, maybe? He's Robert Redford. Yeah, no, that's why. <laughs> I'm like, don't burst my bubble. (laughs) (laughs) My Robert Redford-shaped bubble. Oh, man. Uh, So Woodward learns that the five men, four Cuban-Americans from Miami and James W. McCord Jr., had electronic bugging equipment and are represented by a high-priced country club attorney. And yes, that is in quotes. Yeah, Sam's doing finger quotes. Sorry, I need to narrate your your actions. Sam's doing finger like, quotes. First, you need to give my expressions, and then you need to... <laughs> and stop kicking you in the face. That's right. Uh, I have to work so hard on this podcast. <laughs> I know, I'm such a difficult co-host. Podcast is not a real word. Podcast. No, it is now, but podcast. it wasn't before. What, what is a podcast? Podcast. This is a podcast. <laughs> That's what this is. That's what this is. Great, we've defined it. Moving okay. on. Uh, so at the arraignment, McCord identifies himself in court as having recently left the CIA. And then, of course, all the others are recently are revealed to have CIA ties as well. Duh. And this is not the Cooking Institute of America. It's no. the other CIA. It's the other CIA. The, the Central Intelligence Agency version of the CIA. Let's just make sure everyone's clear yeah. on that. I actually had deleted that from my notes because I thought everybody would know what the CIA is. But I'm glad we cleared it up. It's important. It's so important. What if, you know what, we might have listeners in other countries who don't know what the CIA stands for? Central Intelligence Agency. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good gin. (laughs) Uh, Woodward then connects the burglars to E. Howard Hunt, a former employee of the CIA. Because his name is in their address books. (laughs) Because that's not a clue. Uh, And also to President Richard Nixon's White House counsel, Charles Colson. This is also a hilarious scene because Woodward has to ask Harry Rosenfeld, his editor, who Colson is. And Jack Warden plays this scene so well. It is really funny. Because he's like, if I didn't like you, you'd be fired right now. Because Because you don't know who Charles Colson is. Because you don't know who Charles Colson is. Again... What have we been saved by living in an era when we can just Google? Google, right? We don't have to embarrass ourselves by going, hey, boss, mm-hmm. who is this really important, famous figure that I'm supposed to know? And don't, because I'm, I'm not the, lo- the local political reporter or anything. <laughs> I just Google it. And then I can pretend I know things. Right? Uh, so Carl Bernstein, or else Dustin Hoffman's hair who is another post reporter <laughs> is assigned to cover the Watergate story with Woodward. Of course, this is after Bernstein tries rewriting Woodward's stories a couple times. And I, again, this this they play the scene really well in the movie. Yeah, I think it's I think it's I love that it really happened yes, and they play it really they well They play too. it really well. So, um, you know, Robert Redford writes a story, gives it to the desk to be to be um published and then Dustin Hoffman's hair walks over, picks it up, takes a look at it, takes it back to his desk, starts rewriting it. Robert Redford writes another story, puts it to the desk. Dustin Hoffman's hair does the same thing. And Robert Redford confronts him about it. Yeah. And it it goes over really well because Robert Redford's like, I don't mind that you're doing it. I mind that you didn't ask me or tell me. I didn't like the way you did it. I didn't like the way you did it. And I'm like, so much could be solved if you just did that. Just talk it out. And I love that in that scene... So this is, I think, is a mark of a really good adaptation. In the book, they establish a very similar thing that at first the two don't trust each other mm-hmm. and they build this camaraderie over time. And I think that scene condenses that journey mm-hmm. really nicely in a, you know, what are you doing? Yes, you're doing what you are. It is better. Don't do it that way. Right, exactly. And then from then on, they're yep. a team. Exactly. And it's like you, so you, you understand both that Robert Redford you know, kind of respects Carl Bernstein's talent, but at the mm-hmm. same time be like, you also have to respect me 
Yeah. By, you know, kind of treating me as a as a um, peer. And from then on. And they were buds. And from then on, we can ship them to eternity. It's Woodstein. Yeah. It's adorable. Yeah. So the two, yo- the two young men are reluctant partners, but work well together. Executive ed- editor Benjamin Bradley believes their work lacks reliable sources and is not worthy of the post front page, but he does encourage them to investigate further. Jason Robards. So great. So great. So great in this role. So fantastic. He is like, I haven't seen the post, so I can't compare his performance to Tom Hanks. I'm assuming they're very different, even though they're the same person. But Jason mm. Robards was, was great. Yeah. He's just also fantastic in everything. Yeah. Um, he is wonderful as the patriarch in Parenthood. Yes. Also, he's been in other movies, but that's just the only one I can think of right now. Um, he was in the movie about the nuclear blast, and I can't remember what it's called right now. There's been more than one movie about that. Deep Impact? No. Oh, no. This was a long time ago. Oh. Uh, um, I had to watch it in seventh grade. The Day the Earth Stood Still? Uh, that's Aliens. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but that's true. I've never seen that movie. <laughs> anyway, I always assumed it was about a nuclear explosion. He's in a movie about some nuclear explosion, and I can't remember what it's called right now. And they made you watch that in seventh grade? I think so. Yeah. Your seventh or eighth grade. It was weird. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Man, that's school at the height of the Cold War for you. <laughs> Don't grow up in small town Connecticut, kids. I won't. <laughs> Deal. Deal. Continuing on. Woodward contacts a senior government official, an anonymous source whom he has used before, who becomes christened Deep Throat by one of the Post editors. I'm pretty sure it's Simons. It's Simons. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ah, I just the... wrote pretty sure it was Simons, <laughs> and I said it before I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I. <laughs> wow. I respect your process. God, I, I have I have issues. <laughs> Um, communicating secretly using a flag placed in a balcony flower pot, flower pot to signal meetings. They meet in a, at night in an underground parking garage. And I loved all of these scenes, especially the first intro scene into the whole mm-hmm. process. The music and the cinematography worked really well to set the mood in the stage. So, And the way he's shot, so his face is always in shadow. Always in shadow. So, like, you see, Rob, you see Robert Redford coming up to the garage, and the music is kind of, like, low and, and mel- mel- melodic. And, you know, you follow him up the stairs from mm-hmm. far away, and then you see him coming down the stairs again from far away. And then you're kind of following him along into the parking garage. You're getting closer and closer and closer as he's getting closer to mm-hmm. Deep Throat. And I just, I thought it was so well done how they kind of translated the intrigue in the book into just a visual yeah. path. My boy Pacula, you know? Right. He knows right? what he's doing. He really does. He did. He, well, he's, I'm assuming he's, he's dead. He's dead. Yeah. yeah. Rest in peace. Is, is he dead? <laughs> yes, he is. End of game. <laughs> Damn it. Well, we lost that one. I think he lost? <laughs> Um, all right, so Deep Throat speaks in riddles and metaphors, avoiding substantial facts about the Watergate break-in, but keeps advising Woodward to follow the money. Follow the money. Follow the money. Which, that's one of those things that it's ubiquitous in the culture now, mm-hmm. but... It's so true. It, yeah. But it is true. Yeah, and, like, like that is, is how they... from. That is how they found out everything, is mm-hmm. they followed the money. Yep. Yep. Um... Woodward and Bernstein managed to connect the five burglars to corrupt activities around campaign contributions to Nixon's committee to reelect the president. Uh, It's called CRP in the book, but it's called creep in the movie. Which is such an appropriate. So good. Term. Yep. They call it creep. I mean, I don't know if they actually called it creep in real life. or I would assume they did since, I mean. Right. Why would they change it for the? I think the movie strives very hard to be as accurate as possible. I agree. Excuse me. So this includes a check for $25,000 paid to Kenneth H. Dahlberg, whom Miami authorities identified when investigating the Miami-based burglars. Uh, still, Bradley and others at the Post doubt the investigation and its dependence on sources such as Deep Throat, wondering why the Nixon administration should break the law when the president is almost certain to defeat his opponent, Democratic nominee George McGovern. Because they're not as smart as they seem. Nope. And, and I mean, yeah. they've gotten clumsy because they've gotten away from it with yep. for too long. Exactly. I mean, they did such a good job of sabotaging everybody that, of course, McGovern was going to lose because they sent out this letter, um, you know, as if it was from him, like the Canuck letter. Yeah. And it was it was devastating to his campaign. And 
not was it, it was musky musky's campaign. campaign so it's like those are the tactics they're doing so right they they did things that were legal but of course they're gonna they're gonna win yeah it sabotaged musky's campaign before he got off the ground and they thought he was a stronger candidate than than the democratic candidate yep mcgovern is the one who ended up running like it they engineered it right so that nixon would Would win and they still mucked it all up because they couldn't like once they got mcgovern there they just couldn't stop and it totally worked yeah it's so depressing yep uh, through former creep treasurer Hugh W. Sloan Jr., and I do want to throw out there that the actor who plays this character is no longer able to be mentioned because... We do not speak his name. He uh, has behaved inappropriately and admitted to it. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein connect a slush fund of hundreds of thousands of dollars to White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman, the second most important man in the country, and to former Attorney General John N. Mitchell, now head of Creep. They learn. I'm a creep. <laughs> I'm a weirdo. <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? Uh, we don't have the right to that, so. <laughs> oh. Uh, I'll stop singing. Isn't there like some number of seconds that you can. I don't know the law. Let's just assume that we're under that. <laughs> okay. Um, they maybe, learn... maybe you should just bleep out that song. Oh. Don't cut it, bleep it. <laughs> That's and then that, everyone will just think that I swore for eight seconds. <laughs> no. We're leaving it all in, including <laughs> this exchange. <laughs> this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> they learned that Creep was financing a rat-fucking campaign to sabotage Democratic presidential candidates a year before the Watergate burglary when Nixon was lagging Edward Muskie in, Edmund Muskie in the polls. While Bradley's demand for thoroughness compels the reporters to obtain other sources to confirm the Haldeman connection, the White House the White House issues a non-denial denial of the post above the full story. The editor continues to encourage investigation, and this is a big moment in the book mm-hmm. because basically they're like they write this story about Haldeman, but it's wrong. Not that it's wrong, but like they don't actually have the the sources to back it up because um, there is. All there, there were all these misunderstandings between all the sources, and Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein because they were rushing, and so um, this is like how the movie basically this is the the ending note of mm-hmm. the story. So they end on this part of the book, and they keep going a little bit, but like this, you can kind of ru- like rush to kind of kind of prove that they weren't wrong in the story just because their sources weren't willing to say no we that's what we said they weren't wrong about haldeman but they were wrong about how they so about how they told the story they got like one detail wrong. right exactly but it um, undermines their credibility exactly and so the movie kind of ends with them trying to uh scramble to get their credibility back mm-hmm. where the book has another at least third to half of the right book the book explores how they get yep. all the way up to haldeman yeah exactly and so um, Woodward again meets secretly with Deep Throat and demands he'd like be less evasive. He's like, s- he's, like, stop jerking me around, guy, because like he was still doing his like riddles and stuff. And you were just like, all right, you were so annoying. Can you please stop that? I can't believe anyone would say that to Robert Redford. No, no, that's what Robert said to Hal Holbrook. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Yes. Uh, Deep Throat reveals that Haldeman masterminded the Watergate break-in and cover-up. He also states that the cover-up was not just to camouflage the creep involvement, but to hide covert operations involving the entire intelligence, U.S. intelligence community, including the CIA and FBI. He warns Wordward and Bernstein that their lives and others are in danger. When the two relay this to Bradley at Bradley's home, while he's in his PJs, he urges them to carry on despite the risk from Nixon's re-election. And so the movie ends kind of like on this high note, being like, even though they haven't solved the thing in the movie, they're like still like kind of gung ho, like mm-hmm. we're we're on it, we've on the, we're, we're on gonna the trail. face this risk. That's we're right, make it. We're gonna forge ahead. Uh, so on January twentieth, nineteen seventy three, it's only been like a year. Um, Bernstein and Woodward type the full story while television in the foreground shows Nixon taking the oath of office for a second term as president. And so while the book is only about halfway to two-thirds complete at this point, the movie stops here and closes with a montage-related teletype headlines from the following year. And while the book was published before Nixon's resignation and the inauguration of Vice President Gerald Ford on August 9th, 1974, both events are recognized in this montage Mm -hmm. at the end, and it ends with kind of like that note. Yeah. 
So it was an interesting choice to kind of speed through the rest of the book just with the teletype and end on kind of like Woodward and Bernstein being like, we can do this. We can prove it goes all the way up here. Right. Which, if you assume an audience in 1976 all knows that Nixon resigned. Yep. Do you really need to play that out or do you need to end with and the boys continued from there? Right. Exactly. I mean, I can I can kind of understand it. Certainly you can't squeeze everything else in the book into no. one two hour movie. There's right. a lot there. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because like we were saying earlier, it starts out slow and I feel like it just kind of the momentum just keeps going. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can see why the movie ended on this one note. But for me, like, it just kept going. It, yeah. Like, the, it just, like, kind of snowballed. And, like, it just, it wasn't like it just kind of got to that point and just, like, kind of petered out. Right. There's but everything just, around them trying to scapegoat John Dean and yep. him then. Exactly. He wasn't even mentioned in the movie. Yeah, like, he's not he in the movie. He was a non-entity because he mm-hmm. didn't show up until basically after Deep Throat's like, yeah, you're right about Haldeman. Here's what you needed to do. Right. And then there's there's a lot of other players who they, like, there's so many layers of... Yep. Um, you know, because, cause, like, Hunt and um, McCord, like, they're low level, mm-hmm. but, like, working their way up, like, their bosses and their bosses and right. their it bosses. And it goes going. all the way yep. up, up and up and up. So it's like we went up a little bit, and then we were like, oh, they tried to get Haldeman and they failed, but they're going to keep going mm-hmm. and they'll get there. Yep. Exactly. But we don't see all of the people they bring down they have to, go through, to get to, to get Haldeman to, yeah. and ultimately Nixon. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, I, I enjoyed the movie as well. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was yeah. well done. And I think. Considering the movie, I think, does try very hard to be as accurate as possible, mm-hmm. it's it's good they didn't do too much. Right. If this was a fictional story, you could just combine characters mm-hmm. and combine events, but that's really dangerous when yep. you're trying to accurately represent what happened. I think, if I remember correctly, one of the only liberties they took was, in the book, they hired another journalist to track down Segretti yes. in California and talk yep. to him. In the movie, it's Bernstein flies out to yep. California and talks to him. Yep. So, like, they, I mean, they did that. Yeah. But even that, I mean, they... Yeah, well, I think at one point in the book, they did go... One of them did go out to go with this other reporter. Right, they, yeah, but, but that's after other, he'd already established contact. Exactly, exactly. The so, other reporter had already done the groundwork with Segretti. Yeah, they chased yeah. Segretti for a while before... Yes, before they got him. And so, in the movie, it was so much easier. Right, so, I mean, and that... <laughs> that's a little bit of a... Con, uh, of a con, Yeah, they condensed timelines condense, for sure, but, I think. But otherwise, they were... I mean, they and they cut, like, an editor... They cut Sussman, but... There were three editors instead of two. two. Or, yeah. no, four editors instead of three. Or whatever. There were so many editors, I don't know. I can't even... I None can't of them were Tom Hanks, so no, I don't care. exactly. I mean, I like Jack Warden. I think he's fun. And Jason Robards. Right. And that other guy. Yes. Uh, Jack... <laughs> so I grew up watching The Great Muppet Caper, and Jack Warden <laughs> has a cameo as, in the beginning, as um, the editor for the newspaper where Fozzie and Kermit work. Yep. yep and yep. so when he came on screen and... <laughs> He's an editor in this. I was like, oh, is he always play editors? And it's like, oh, no. no, no. It's the, the Grave of a Caper was... After. It was an um, homage. It was an it was homage an... because... <laughs> he was an editor in this movie. the Muppets work. Yep. And also, it's one of my favorite jokes of all time that <laughs> Kermit and Fozzie are identical twins, but you can only tell when Fozzie puts on his hat. <laughs> That's such a great movie. It's such a great movie. <laughs> Uh, oh, man. Is it time for some fun and games? Let's have some fun and games, Sam. Uh, do you want to start us off with some heartthrobs and hairdos? Sure. Your top three har- Who are your top three hotties? Well, not Dustin Hoffman. <gasps> That's so mean. I'm sorry, but no. Who uh, are your hotties? <laughs> Robert Redford. Obviously. Really? <laughs> I mean... I feel like I shouldn't have had to state that, but I had to. Like, because... he should be disqualified because it's not fair to the mm. other contestants. Oh, God, no. So, and, like, honestly, I could not come up with any other men. So I just what? had Meredith Baxter Bernie because she was so young and naive. This is weird, but she's mine, too. <laughs> I have Meredith Baxter Bernie as Mrs. Sloan as my That's third amazing. hottie. <laughs> so my first hottie is Robert Redford. Clearly. I wrote down, obviously. <laughs> um, so I actually did have Dustin Hoffman as Heidi number two, but only when I squint until he looks like Kylo Ren. Nice. Accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what are your top three outfits? Not Dustin Hoffman's hair. Oh my God, Sam. <laughs> Usually we just say the ones we like. We don't call out people. I can't help it. It's just there all the time. It was the 70s. So bad. What if I told you that like people you knew and loved had the same hairstyle? I don't know who, but I'm sure they did. 
it was a different time. There was a lot of drugs. I mean, uh, the hairdressers were all taking them. I mean, even Donald <laughs> Sutherland's sweet, sweet mop was oh, better than this. Oh, Donald Sutherland's sweet perm! <laughs> oh, man, I'd forgotten about Donald Sutherland's sweet perm. It was amazing. His perm. He had a perm. <laughs> that was not natural. <laughs> oh, and the mustache. Oh, man. It's See? A different time. Like, I, I was okay with that. <laughs> different time. Seriously. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so Bob Woodward's suits were pretty dapper. Uh, he wore a lot of like Orange. mustard brown. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Complimented his coloring very well, though. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and brought out I... the gold highlights in his right. silken hair. Oh god, he's so attractive. Oh god. <laughs> um, and then Jason Robards wore a formal suit to work, and I was, I was, I was digging that. Mm-hmm. I was digging that. Mm-hmm. What about you? All right. So. Um, I don't know the names of all these characters, but uh, in that scene at the um, at the courthouse, the indictment of the burglars, the not lawyer nice. that he's following around has a great paisley tie. Yes, he which does. Which I could not help but notice. Yep. Um, outfit number two is, uh, so Bernstein has a contact at the CRP, a girl that he dated briefly, and she has this great green blouse. Oh, she's They're the sitting the outside yeah. the cafe. Yeah, her, her blouse, it's a green it blouse. It's so really nice. be during that scene, though. Yeah, well, Ugh. again, just squint until you see Kylo Ren, and it, it plays differently. My why, why, my note was uh, Bernstein's charm? Sam's doing finger quotes again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then outfit number three is Lindsay Krause's dark green dress, and oh, she has this, like, her yes. blonde hair is, like, perfectly flipped. Ugh. In that lovely yeah. 70s way. Wings. The wings. wings. Yeah, she's got wings. So um, that's my that's my third outfit. Very so nice. all of my all of my outfits are people whose I didn't know their character's name. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Lindsay Krause's character's name was Kay Eddie. Well, I didn't know that because I didn't look it up because I was busy and I forgot. <laughs> but Kay Eddie's dark green dress and perfect. Blonde wings. I don't remember the charmed lady. She was just a And I'm pretty person. sure the lawyer didn't have a name. I'm sure if I went on IMDb, I could find them. I just didn't do it. Meh. I was busy important. writing a whole freaking essay. It's not important. It was a long book, Sam. I ran out of time. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's not like you have kids or anything like that. It's not like I have 17 children and eight cats. and <laughs> exhausted. Oh, my God. All right. Do you want my quizzes and questions? I want your quizzes and questions, Sam. What do you got for me? Um, why did the burglars bother to bring walkie-talkies if they were just going to be too loud and had to be shut off? Okay. The answer is that those burglars were terrible and stupid. <laughs> and they were not good at their jobs. Yeah. So one, one, of the, one of the highlights of the movie that I didn't get into because I felt it was a, you know... There, the burglars were, you know, breaking into the Democratic National Committee, and there was a lookout across the way in right. another room with a walkie-talkie. With a walkie-talkie, and they all had walkie-talkies, but it was squawking and making too much noise when he was trying to warn him. The the people discovered the door, so they turned him off. Yeah. So the guy's just like, guys, can you hear me? Guys, can you hear me? Hello, guys, can you hear me? And uh, there's trouble, trouble, trouble. He yeah. lost the kingdom for want of a quieter walkie-talkie. Right. You know, it's. So stupid. I have one more question. Go ahead. Is this really the greatest reporting story of all time? She's looking off into the distance. I'm thinking. Thinking deeply. I'm thinking. (laughs) I haven't read a lot of books about reporting stories. I mean, how about this? It is perhaps the greatest reporting story so far. That is fair. That is fair. I mean, what could compare to it? Um, I don't know any other reporting stories. Exactly. <laughs> so as far, as far as you know, yes, it is. There. Question answered. All right, Sam. <laughs> Here's my question for you. Okay. You ha- you have to um, pull out your book, though. Oh, okay. So in the middle of the book, for me, it's right after page 128, but you have a later edition, so it might be different. They have pictures of all of Same these spot. people, yep. except for... Bernstein and Woodward, their pictures aren't in here. Which is really sad, because I wanted to see how close Dustin Hoffman's hair was to Carl Bernstein. I'm sure we could have Googled it, but again, again I just I forgot didn't time. time. So, <laughs> Sam, I need you to go through these pictures and tell me who your three real-life hotties are. Oh, okay, so we're playing this game And again, listeners, 
please play along at home. All right, so clearly, first, the first we have one is not Richard. Yeah, first is Richard, Richard M. Nixon. Nixon. Nope. Not a and, hottie. uh, ooh, yeah, that's... Not a hottie. Oh, man. Uh, so, of the president's men. Yep. I could be convinced that Dwight L. Chapin could be You know, attractive. he needs to fill in his eyebrows a little bit, but yeah, yeah, he looks like he's a cutie. Yep. Um, let me see. No, 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 no I don't know, no. the way John Dean is, uh, getting all close up on that microphone... I mean, he's a little, it's a little sensuous. He's making, making pretty hard on it, but... Mm. Oh, man, L. Patrick Gray looks... He has Muppet mm-hmm. mouth. Look at him. Yeah, he does. He looks just like Sam the Eagle's mouth, like the way it's like a beaker. built-in. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. It's a beaker. Uh, Haldeman's haircut is terrifying. Uh, he was in the military. Clearly. Yep. Uh, uh, I do enjoy E. Howard Hunt Jr.'s high-waisted pants. He reminds I, me. He seems to enjoy them, too. The, he reminds me of uh, Clint Eastwood and his old man pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to say that Eagle Croc... Krog Jr. He could, he could, he's yeah. got kind of an all-American football player yeah. thing going for him. Yeah, he's got the nice cheekbones for sure. There for you sure, go. For sure. um, let's see. Uh, like I said earlier, the if people are into Burt Reynolds, G. Gordon Liddy is a nice substitute. For uh, you. The only thing about him that is anything remotely like Burt Reynolds is his mustache. Uh, and his eyebrows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe Jeb Stewart Magruder. Magruder! <laughs> Um, no, no. John maybe. Mi- John Mitchell looks like um, Alfred Hitchcock. Yep. Uh, maybe Robert C. Odell Jr. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, like, the glasses are kind of bl- black. Yeah, I'm gonna say probably not. Um, definitely Hugh W. Sloan Jr. And I love that the picture they chose is of him, him and his wife life. looking at each other. Like, oh. they're, it is very clear that, um, our, the reporters mm-hmm. were quite taken with Mrs. Sloan. They yes. were so so kind and generous to her and they never say anything her. bad about mm-hmm. her she was also she supported they her husband, were but she was like you know on the side of good yeah um let's see and, and then the, fact that the way that they're looking at each other is yeah. really beautiful it is and then uh no 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 no, no. uh definitely not not definitely not the burglar uh no none of the prosecution the judge is hilarious he's like uh joe pesci with hair and like older george pesci with hair yeah, he looks like he should be in The Sopranos. Yep. Uh, I love the picture of Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham. They're I know just they're laughing. A great time. And... Um, and Barry Sussman does have that pipe, right? I'm being a fan. Of... And then the senator Sam Irvin with a face like a ham, right? Like this. Uh, this they really captured him. So they really, really I think him. I think the real problem, Sam, is narrowing it down to three. Right? How could you I, ever? Geez, so many choices. I can't. It's amazing. And we've just made fun of a bunch of people who are dead. I'm sorry. Not all of them, but enough of them <laughs> that we should feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm kind not. Of. I'm not at all. If you've made it this far in the podcast, you're not you sorry either. Like. <laughs> you know what we do. Should we do some fake awards? Yeah. Twenty guesses about who my Jeff Goldblum award goes to. Is it Dustin Hoffman's hair? Yes, it is! Yes, it's mine, too! Yay! We had the same Jeff Goldblum Award. Yes. My Jeff Goldblum Award goes to, specifically, Dustin Hoffman's Kylo Ren hair. Oh, see, I didn't go that far. I just I said did. hair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who are your other awards? Um, so, the I Think He's More Annoying in the Movie Award goes to Duffman Ho- Dustin Hoffman's portrayal of Carl, Burns, Carl Bernstein. See, I kept picturing Bernie Sanders, and he I think he was probably pretty annoying, too. So Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> different, different interpretation. That's right. Um, and then the award for Best Product Placement goes to Ritz Crackers. Oh, yeah. If Robert Redford <laughs> eats them, they must be good. What are your awards? Uh, so, Jeff Goldblum Award, obviously. Yeah. Uh, we did. Um, the Buffy Cast Cameo Award goes to Lindsay Krause. Nice. And I I propose that we always bring that back whenever we find a, bu- yes. a Buffy I, uh, I support that. Cast I support member. that. Um, and the, I'm sorry, can you please spell that? <laughs> award goes to Nixon's personal friend, Bob Eplenelp. Abplenelp. What? A-B-P-L-A-N-A-L-P. Is how his name is spelled in the book. That's hilarious. <laughs> Told you. You have to spell it. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, and that, I think. Mm. And that is that. Is All the President's Men <laughs> by Anna and Sam. I definitely recommend you both read the book and watch the movie. Both are excellent. They're both very good. 
And only moderately depressing. <laughs> it helps if you have gin. Yes, yes, it does. Um, but next episode, we will be talking about Emma by Jane Austen, and we'll be watching not one, but two versions. Mm-hmm. The 2009 miniseries starring Ramal Garai and Johnny Lee Miller. Oh, I'm so excited. Nightlies, one of my favorite nightlies. Mm-hmm. And 1995's Clueless by Amy Heckerling. I'm so excited for this episode! Mm-hmm. Sorry. With the, never a- the never-aging Paul Rudd and many others. <laughs> Some other people are and in so it. So many others. Uh, we will once we will be joined once again by our very special guest Michelle, who is both the expert on Jane Austen and Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she knows things. She does. She knows things about things. <laughs> well, until then, help us spread the word. Rate and review on iTunes. Tell your friends, coworkers, and uh, whoever has wiretapped your office. Yes. How great Adapt with Anna and Sam is. Uh, We want to hear from you, so send us your questions, your comments, and do your six degrees. Send it to adaptedwithannaandsam at gmail.com. Or you can post them on Facebook. You can find us at Adapted with Anna and Sam. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Adapted Podcast. Let's keep the conversation and political commentary going. No? Yeah. Uh. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Adapted with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna, and I wish Clue was based on a book. I'm Sam, and I wish Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was based on a book. Bye! Bye.